0: how do you say how much you love someone? In the movie Avengers Endgame, <clears throat> there's a scene where Iron Man, <clears throat> Tony Stark, <clears throat> is uh, putting his little girl to bed. And as he's leaving, he tells her, love you tons. And then she responds, you may well know, she responds, she fires back, I love you 3,000. And uh, Robert Downey Jr., evidently, he, he came up with that line. He He says that uh, it was something that I think Exton, my now eight-year-old, used to say to me. And a lot of kids say, you know, it's before they can quantify love, they just think of the biggest number they know, and it's usually like 2,000 or 3,000, whatever. So he he added that, well, it reminds me of one of my favorite kids' books. Guess how much I love you. So in the story, it's a little bit before bedtime, and little nut brown hair wanted big nut brown hair to know how much he loved him. And so... He said, guess how much I love you. And when Big Nut Brown Hair says, oh, I don't think I could guess that, Little Nut Brown Hair responds by stretching out his hands as as wide as he can and saying, this much. But Big Nut Brown Hair then stretched his even longer arms out, and he says, but I love you this much. And then the story goes back and forth, and you have... Little nut brown hair saying, I love you as high as I can reach. And then big nut brown hair obviously can reach even higher. And little nut brown hair then, he leans himself up against a tree and stands on his his head and reaches his toes up and says, I love you as far as my toes can reach. Of course, big nut brown hair can do better than that. He grabs little nut brown hair, swings him over the top of his head and says, I love you as far as your toes are. And Little nut brown hair tries to jump high, but of course, big nut brown hair can jump higher, and he eventually decides he's going to change his tact, so he says, I love you all the way down the lane as far as the river, and the bigger hair says, I love you across the river and over the hills. So at this point, the book reads, that's very far, thought little nut brown hair. He was almost too sleepy to think anymore, and he looked beyond the thorn bushes out into the big dark night. Nothing could be farther than the sky. I love you right up to the moon, he said, and closed his eyes. Oh, that's far, said Big Nut Brown Hair. That is very, very far. Big Nut Brown Hair settled Little Nut Brown Hair into his bed of leaves. He leaned over and kissed him goodnight. Then he laid down close by a smile. I love you right up to the moon and back. Kind of might remind you of Elizabeth. Barrett Browning's sonnet number 43, how do I love thee? Let me count the ways. They're all just trying to express how much they love someone else. And that's what we see in our passage this morning. See a woman doing her best to express her love to Jesus. And she does something Jesus even calls in verse 10, a beautiful thing. But it's set in the context of two realities. On the one hand, you have the contrast with the chief priests and and the uh, elders and Judas Iscariot. But then you also have something else, a comparison here that's closer to the comparison between little nut brown hair and big nut brown hair. Because as much as this woman is expressing her beautiful love for her Savior, Jesus is telling his disciples in this passage... About his loving death for them. That's just two days away. So, how do we quantify our love for Jesus? You know, it, it certainly doesn't compare with his love for us. His love for us is is greater. But throughout the story, throughout this message this morning, I want you to think about this question: Does your love for Christ cost you anything? The woman in the story, again, she expresses her love, and she does it in a costly manner. But there are others in the story, they're more concerned about what Jesus might cost them, or they're trying to recoup what they believe Jesus has already cost them. So it's not love for Jesus. But a true disciple loves Jesus more than anyone else. Jesus said that in Matthew 10, 37 through 38. He said, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. See, our our salvation is absolutely free. But everyone who truly experiences salvation, they're going to love in a costly manner. They're going to recognize this love that Jesus has shown. They're going to love much because they've been loved so much. So does your love for Christ cost you anything? This passage is going to illustrate what that looks like by way of this woman's act as well as by contrast. But we remember from the start, we remember that we only love because he first loved us. So what we're going to see in this passage, you can turn to Matthew twenty twenty-six if you haven't already done so. What we'll see in this passage are two plans and two responses. In verses 1 through 5, you're going to see God's plans and human plans. And then in verses 6 through 16, we're going to see the responses of loving Jesus or loving yourself. And so first we're going to look at these two plans. And these again will demonstrate, these plans and responses, they will demonstrate how our love for Jesus is a costly love. So let's look at the plans first. And we'll see God's plan in verses 1 and 2. So Matthew makes a transition at verse 1. He does this after every teaching section. He says something very similar. After every teaching section, Matthew says something like he says at the Sermon on the Mount. It ends with, and when Jesus finished these sayings. And after his teaching in chapter 18, he says, now when Jesus had finished these sayings. Matthew says something similar after his teaching in chapters 10 and 13. But there is something slightly different here. Matthew here says when Jesus had finished all these sayings. So there's some finality with what has just taken place. This this is the last section of teaching in Matthew's gospel. And so Jesus from now on is going to be focused on finishing his mission. So in verse 2, Jesus tells his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. And that is something that also should sound familiar to anybody who's been reading in Matthew. Right after his disciples had, had clearly articulated they got it. They understood who Jesus was. Peter gives his great confession. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. It was right then, Matthew says, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem. And suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And on the third day be raised. And then right after the Mount of Transfiguration, when when God peeled back the curtain and you saw Jesus' glory, three of his disciples saw that. It was right after then that Jesus told them, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And then as Jesus is making this journey to Jerusalem, where this is going to take place, in chapter 20, he says, see, we are going to Jerusalem. Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And he will be raised on the third day. So this this would not have been a surprise to the disciples. It shouldn't have been a surprise to us. But what you see in each of these three places is that the disciples don't get it. They don't understand what Jesus is talking about. Peter took Jesus aside after the first one and said, no, 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 that... Don't think that way, Jesus. The Father would never let that happen to you. And then even though they're disturbed after the second time he says this, what's the next thing you see them doing in the next chapter? They're, they're basically asking Jesus to settle an argument about who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And then after the third time, what happens right after it is James and John get their mom to go up to Jesus and ask if they can have the two greatest seats in the kingdom of heaven. They don't understand what Jesus is doing. They don't understand his mission. They don't understand what's going to happen in just a couple of days. Now, Jesus does reveal here that it is in just a couple of days. days. It's the first time he gives a specific time to what's going to happen. It'd be during the Passover. He's very specific about that. Now, that's very intentional timing. We're going to see that. God planned for this to take place during the Passover because that sacrifice at the Passover was fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus is the Passover lamb. So the father sovereignly planned this so that Jesus' death would line up with that sacrifice, with that feast. So that it would be all the more clear to us that Jesus' death was a redeeming sacrifice. So this is the divine plan. This is the plan from before creation, That Jesus was going to be the true Passover lamb. That's what Paul calls Jesus in 2 Corinthians 5. Or 1 Corinthians 5. So Jesus, what he's doing here in verse 2 is he's articulating the plan. God's plan. It's a rock solid plan. It is not, there's nothing that could prevent it from happening. He, He can be confident to even state the day that it's going to take place. But you notice that even in, this, even in the way that he says this, it's taking place through human instruments. Instruments that are not anyway any way under God's coercion, as though they're doing something against their will. They're doing this freely. They're not puppets. They freely choose to hand Jesus over to be crucified by the Romans. So what you see after the divine plan is human plans in verses 3 through 5. So verse 3 describes this gathering of very important people. The chief priests and the elders of the people. And John states in his gospel that these elders and priests, they represent the Sanhedrin. And that's probably why Matthew actually uses a passive verb here. He, we could translate to this, the chief priests and elders were gathered. He's saying that this is, this is more like being summoned to a meeting. But it's not an official meeting. It's kind of an off-the-books meeting by this, this group called the Sanhedrin. They're, one of the issues w- that, in terms of where they were going to meet, they couldn't meet in the temple area because they were probably, they didn't know when they were going to resolve this issue. So it might go through the night, and they couldn't meet in the temple all throughout the night. And so they chose the high priest's very uh, palatial, you could say, his, his house, but probably specifically refers to the courtyard here where they could have this meeting with all these people. The high priest at the time's name is Caiaphas, but uh, what you need to understand about what's happened in Israel is his father-in-law is Annas. He was the high priest before him, and normally, or I should say from the very beginning, this was an inherited role that would be for the entirety of your life. So what happened, Herod and the Roman procurators after him, didn't think it was a good idea to to let somebody have this amount of power to be a lifelong ruler in this way. And they did, after the the 200s, become more like rulers. And so they would depose a high priest after a little while and replace him with somebody else. And what you see early on is that this happened often and quickly. People didn't last very long. But Annas, he lasts from eighty six to 15. And now Caiaphas, he begins his role in AD 18, and he will last all the way to 36. So Caiaphas, even more than Annas, he's figured out how to get along with the Romans. So it just gives you a little idea of who were, who's leading this meeting. And it's also interesting, Matthew, he describes this group as the chief priests and the elders. There's another group in the Sanhedrin. Everybody knew about them, the scribes. And John tells us that they're there. They're part of this. He mentions the Pharisees who would have been scribes. Matthew's saying this because biblically, God established the chief priests he 's established the priesthood and the elders in Israel from the very beginning, so matthew 's stating very clearly, these people that are meeting they are israel 's official rulers they 're the official leaders, and they 're the ones he says are plotting against jesus and here 's their plan: they want to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him now it 's not a new plan, even back in Matthew chapter twelve, the Pharisees were plotting to destroy jesus, but what what 's happened now is kind of ramped up a little bit they're being a little bit more deliberate they have they're they're trying to gather a specific plan and they knew they could just walk up to Jesus in the day and arrest him because they saw how the crowd had responded to his arrival so they knew they had to do this by stealth they had to do this behind the backs of the people and they have a plan they're not because they don't want to disrupt the crowd They're not going to do this during the feast. They're not going to do it during the Passover. He says in verse 5, But they said not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. So remember what Passover is. Passover is the celebration of God's redemption of his people from Egypt, from their slavery in Egypt. So you can understand, you have all these people that are remembering how God delivered them from the despotic rule of some empire. But all the while, they are under this this despised rule of Rome. It's like a powder keg. It wouldn't take much for anyone to set it off. And so they realized that. And actually, there had been an uprising at the Passover festival when Herod died. Herod the Great died. So their fears were were definitely not unwarranted. But Jesus, he had just stated a different plan. They're saying after the Passover. Jesus is saying that was going to happen at the Passover. So whose whose plan's going to succeed? Now, I say that we, we all know which plan's going to succeed. I say that not to suggest that, that God's now going to have to manipulate the situation. Well he's going to have to he's going to have to bend some wills now because well, we have to get it done on this certain day. What you see is there's continuing this these human roles, these human actions that bring about God's sovereign plan. So it's the very same thing we saw with Joseph and his brothers. You have humans who mean something for evil. And at the very same time, God means that very same thing to bring about his good. So God's sovereignty over this entire situation in no way diminishes our own personal responsibility. So in the end, all these human plans are going to do is they're going to carry out God's plan. They're free plans of these sinful people. But they're going to work out God's holy plans. Now, that in no way means God's the author of evil. It doesn't mean that God is actively causing evil, but he is at work in all things, including evil plans. And you can see that no more clearly than here, that he's going to bring about his good through even evil. And so the believers in Acts 4, in verses 27 and 28, they sum it up well. They say, truly, in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So that means that even though God's sovereign plans or sovereign, sovereignty over the situation is true, it's important for us to know that in no way means that our, our responses to God aren't important. In fact, they're very important, and that's what we see next. We see two responses. One of them... And they're both responses by professing followers of Jesus. One of them is a loving response, but they love Jesus. And you see that starting in verse 6. So verse 6 says that Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper. And John points out that there were other people at this house. He mentions in chapter 12 of his gospel that Mary, Martha, and Lazarus were there. And he does that, and it doesn't say that it's their house in John, So they don't have to be related to Simon, but they're there. And he mentions that, unlike Matthew and Mark, probably because Matthew and Mark don't include the story of Lazarus being raised from the dead. But he also mentions it because in his story, he's very clear about who the woman is in this story. This this woman here is Mary, sister of Martha and Lazarus, Lazarus. Matthew and Mark, they leave her nameless, and, and some people kind of wonder, why, why would they do that? Why wouldn't they give this woman a name? But I think what they're trying to do, on the one hand, they haven't told the story that leads up to this. They haven't told this story about Lazarus, but also they're trying to demonstrate by her anonymity just how, what this was really pointing to. It wasn't about Mary. Mary had done this with, with a humble attitude, wanting to elevate Christ. Wanted to, wanted to show how great Jesus was. Now, we don't know who Simon the leper is, and I think most assume he is formerly a leper. He's not still a leper, which makes sense because they're all gathering at his house. And many very reasonably uh, speculate that he was healed by Jesus. I mean, not, none of this is said, but it makes sense. And he may have even, he may have even kept that that, epitheth, uh, that epithet of the leper as a reminder to everybody. He was one who was a leper and has been healed by Jesus. But he invites Jesus, and in. it makes sense that he invites him over for dinner to, to thank him and to uh, honor him. And it says while they're eating, Matthew says, a woman came up to Jesus with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head. And that wasn't abnormal. In fact, every time you would go to dinner, it was somewhat expected that you would get anointed. You would get, they'd pour a little bit of, of perfumed oil on your head as an honor to your guests. So that wasn't out of the ordinary. What was out of the ordinary is the kind of oil she was using. Matthew describes it as an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment. And Mark and John both say how expensive it was. They tell us how much it cost. And likely, and they say it was this specific oil that probably came from India. So they say that this was worth a year's worth of wages for a day laborer. And one commentator compared it to $30,000. So this is an expensive piece of oil that she is pouring all over Jesus. And that's what the disciples don't like. John says that Judas Iscariot took the initiative here, but Matthew's saying all of the disciples, they're, they're united in what they think here. In verses eight and nine, it says, when the disciples saw it, they, they were indignant, saying, why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. I mean, they don't... They don't like what this woman has done because it, it seems like a waste. It makes sense what they're saying. I mean, it does sound excessive. $30,000. If you think about all the people that that money could have helped, and this is just an act, you, you understand where they're coming from. I mean, so many people in that day were just scraping by. And so it's like, Watching somebody take $100, bundles of $100 bills and burning them on the fire for warmth. It does not make sense to them. And if you think about what we learned last week with what Jesus had told his followers. He said that, that those who, who care for those, care for his followers who are in need, what they're doing is they're honoring him, they're caring for him. And so you could think these disciples said, well, kill two birds with one stone, Mary. You know, help some, some poor followers. And then you'd be honoring Jesus. But no, you know, that's not how Jesus sees it. He mentions them troubling Mary with this complaint. They might have still kept it quiet, but he, he retorts. He says, why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. So this isn't waste. It's a beautiful thing. And he goes on to explain what he means in verse 11. He says that they will always have the poor with them. They will not always have him. There is something special and even unreproducible about what they're experiencing. Because Jesus is physically with them. That was something to celebrate. That was something unique. He had already demonstrated that he cares about the poor. And that would be an appropriate way to demonstrate their love for him in the future. When he wasn't with them. See, when we love others, that's something that flows out of our love for Christ. We demonstrate our love for Christ, who is primary, who comes first, who is the priority, by loving others. So our love for Jesus shouldn't even come close, or our love for others shouldn't even come close to the amount of love, the extent of our love for Jesus. So Jesus goes on to explain something monumental is happening. So her act is actually, it's entirely appropriate. It says in verse 12, in pouring this ointment on my body, she's done it to prepare me for burial. John mentions that she's, she anoints his feet also. And what Matthew is clearly saying, is she, she, is, she has poured this on his body. The question we might have when we look at that, what Jesus says here is, is she acting better than she knew? She not realized, she's just kind of, she didn't realize exactly what was going to happen. She just, by her act of love, she just so happens to have prepared Jesus for his burial. Or is it more like it actually sounds? And Jesus has stated multiple times, this is what was going to happen. Even stated, I'm going to Jerusalem. This is where it's going to happen. She would have had, I mean, if Jesus' enemies knew that he had made these predictions. In chapter 27, in verse 63, they say they knew about these predictions. So this was fairly common knowledge. So she could have understood. It could have been clear to her that if what Jesus is saying is true, he's about to die a criminal's death, and they might not even let us anoint the body. This is our chance to do this. It's my opinion that that is the case. Douglas O'Donnell, he points out that this is picking up a theme in Matthew where people that the people in their day considered to be less significant, they're the ones who get it. So you have these outsiders getting it, these Gentiles, the centurion in chapter chapter 8 and the Canaanite woman in chapter 15. And then from here on out, it's the women in this story who demonstrate the positive examples of discipleship. They show their loyalty and commitment and So I'm I'm definitely thinking Mary understood this. She is giving a deliberate, positive example, recognizing what Jesus is about to do. So Jesus now points out in verse 13 the significance of what Mary's done. He says, truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in all the world, in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Even as early as the gospel of John, which was written most likely after this, but still very early, John introduces us to Mary in chapter 11. And this is how he does it. In verse two, he says, it was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment. You need to understand that in John's gospel, he has not told that story yet. So he's telling the audience, you know who I'm talking about. Mary, the one who anointed Jesus. That means that even at that point, this is now a well-known story. That he can point out, Mary is the person That has done this. And we know that 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 continues to be the case today. As people read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all over the world in various translations, this, what Jesus has said, is true. People are remembering what she's done. But consider something else. Jesus points out by doing this, he says this is the gospel that's going to go out. And when they tell the gospel, this is going to be part of that story. He's emphasizing the fact that the gospel is not just what some people try to do with it. It includes his death. See, there are people out there who try to be very very specific about this word, and they do background studies and say this word in Greek technically is just really talking about the kingdom of God. It's not talking about Jesus' death and resurrection. Well, that's not how Jesus sees it. Jesus is tying his death to the good news. He'll tie his resurrection to it as well. That's exactly the way Paul defines it in 1 Corinthians 15. So this woman's love for Jesus is really pointing to Jesus' prior love for her. Now, he had certainly showed love in raising her brother, Lazarus, from the dead. And I'm sure she is thankful for that. But his mission, the reason why he had come this first time was to give his life as a ransom for the many. That's why this final week of Jesus' life is such a huge part of Matthew's gospel and such a huge part of the other gospels. Jesus came to die and rise again for sinners. Sinners like Mary. Sinners like me. Sinners like you. So that that really is a costly love. Giving up your life for the sake of others. that's, That's costly. And that's why those who love Jesus in return will love him with a costly love. And Mary illustrates that with this expensive oil. We illustrate it with our lives. Second Corinthians 5:15 says, "And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake, died and was raised." He died for us so that we would live for him." So he, he expressed his costly love so that we would, in turn have a costly love for him. So, what does your love for Jesus cost you? I'll tell you, I'll tell you something it might cost you. It might cost you the respect of your peers or your coworkers. I you might say, You believe this ancient religious stuff? You actually believe this? Kind of treating you as ignorant, as out of step with the civilized and scientific modern world? People could even say you're evil. For following Jesus' sexual ethic, following Jesus' morality. Jesus is repressive, and and you're oppressive if you believe what Jesus says. Your love for Jesus could also cost you your economic goals because you choose to focus on using your money for his mission instead of focusing on your own comfort. It could cost you certain pleasures. Because you spend your time in ways that don't prioritize, don't don't elevate trivial things like sports and entertainment. It could cost you your friendships because you recognize that you you love Christ so much you recognize what he's done for you. You can't help but love others by, by telling them about him. And that could affect your relationships with them. You could find that your love for Jesus calls you to deliberately reach out to others. So it could cost you the clicks that you might enjoy. Those places where you enjoy the same likes and interests with people, and it's very easy, but they don't let anybody else in. And instead, you realize that you need to reach out to people who don't have your same likes and interests. It could even cost you your life. You may recognize. That the love you have for Jesus, he is worth it. And other people around the world need to hear that. Even people who live in countries that are violently opposed to the gospel. So the question remains, does your love for Christ cost you anything? If it's a genuine love for the one who gave up his life for you, it will cost you and you will be glad to pay it. But not everybody who confesses to be a follower of Jesus will do that in the end they will prove not to love jesus but to love themselves more than jesus that's what we see next this next response of loving yourself so in verse 14 we see something truly despicable here matthew highlights just how bad it is by beginning with the words one of the 12 so these were the people closest to jesus They'd seen his amazing teaching. They saw his amazing compassion. He he had spent and shared his life the most with this group, and it was one of them who was going to betray Jesus. So Judas Iscariot went to the chief priests and offered to hand Jesus over to them at just the right time. That's what they needed if they would give him something in return. And it clearly didn't have to be much because he settles for 30 pieces of silver. So Philo, a Jewish philosopher who lived in Jesus' day, he explains what slaves cost in their day. He says for a man who is between 20 and 60, you could pay 100 pieces of silver. For even a young man from the age of 5 to 20, you would pay 40. So the least you would spend on a slave would be 30 pieces of silver. The price itself is demonstrating just how How little they think of Jesus. How little both the chief priest and Judas think of Jesus. Now we don't know why Judas made this choice. But we do know it was his choice. God isn't forcing Judas to betray Jesus. Jesus, Judas freely chose to betray Jesus. And it was still through that choice that God accomplished his plan. Remember, they wanted to do this after the Passover. It is through Judas's free decision to help this process that it will take place during the Passover. So, even though Judas wasn't doing this in order to fulfill God's plans, it was according to God's plans that he then, from that moment, sought an opportunity to betray Jesus. But consider the difference between Judas and Mary. Mary spends a year's worth of wages to honor Jesus. Judas, he's willing to accept just four months of wages in order to betray him. Now, we, we don't know his reasons clearly, though. He's centered on his love for himself. He, he is focused on himself, his own gain. In Jesus' mission, well, it wasn't going to satisfy his love for himself. It wasn't enough. Judas was more important than whatever Jesus wanted to do. And I'm not saying that anyone in here is doing what Judas has done. So hear me when I say that. I'm not saying anybody's come close to doing what Judas has done. But which way is the price being paid? Which direction is that payment taking place in your life and, and through your relationship with Jesus? Do you cost Jesus something? Does so he have to pay something more for you in the, even after he's done so much? You expect him to do something more, that he needs to give you a certain kind of life? So which direction is the exchange here? Do you need a personal benefit from Jesus? Do you need him to make sure and give you psychological satisfaction like we talked about last week? Do you need to give you a way to manage your life so that you can have the kind of life you want? Is that what you require Jesus to pay for you beyond his his payment he's already made for you? Is Jesus here to accomplish your agenda? Or is, is he just here to fit into your plans? What is your level of commitment to Jesus? As I mentioned earlier Tony Stark's little girl's response. and She says, he says, I love you tons. She says, I love you 3,000. And it's a statement that, that kind of blew up after the movie. But it didn't just blow up because the little girl said it. In the movie, uh, Tony Stark, he records this message for if the worst happens. And at the end of the movie, they're watching this this recording. And he's going on and on about what could happen and all these things. But he lands on this thought at the end. He says, everything is going to work out exactly the way it's supposed to. And then he's looking right at his daughter and he says, I love you 3,000. And it's very evident at that point that he had... (laughs) But, you know, when he says, I love you 3,000, I don't feel like it's just a I love you too. I, I hear a little bit more like Big Nut Brown Hair's response. No, I, I love you right up to the moon and back. And that's what I, I hear throughout this passage. You know, Jesus, he's really making this implicit statement. He's reminding them, first of all, of his prophetic word, that he's going to go. He's going to die for them. And in Matthew 20, he told us. Verse 28, he told us why he was going to die. It was for a ransom payment for the many. And then he points out that what Mary has done is honoring what? His death, his burial. So, Jesus, I love you 3,000. You know, it does make ours sound childish in comparison imagine a little kid that's stretching out their arms saying, I love you Jesus this much and Jesus does the same. He smiles and looks back and he stretches out his hand and he says, I love you this much and he shows us his hands. So Jesus is not asking for us to have an equivalent love because his love is infinite. But he is wanting us to understand the reality. He wants us to understand the degree of his love for us. The person who understands that will respond with a costly love. Now, our arms aren't going to reach as as far as his. Our arms aren't going to stretch that far. But it doesn't make it any less genuine when you say from your heart, I love you 3,000, Jesus. I love you with my life. It's worth it. It's worth the sacrifice. It's worth the loss. That's the way Paul puts it. Everything is lost compared to knowing Jesus. Knowing Jesus is the true gain. So friend, if you, if you don't know the love of Jesus, if you don't know what the individuals who were baptized described, if you don't know that, I, I promise you it's worth it. And I'd invite you to consider what they illustrated. Dying with Christ, rising with him, so that we are forgiven of our sin and have eternal life. And I would would invite you to think about the purification that it described, that we, again, cleansed of our sins, made holy to God by what Jesus has done. And I would tell you to stop living without him. Stop living your life just the way you think you should live it. Believe that he truly does want what's best for you and has done what is best for you. Believe that he died and rose again, that he did that for your forgiveness, for your eternal life. And then follow him with a love that demonstrates you understand how costly his love was for you, with a costly love. Join me in prayer. Father, we thank you that you are a God who who doesn't just, Tell us, try really hard to love me. That you're a gracious and merciful God who by your spirit even causes us to pay attention to you in the first place. So we thank you for your amazing grace towards you or towards us. We thank you for your amazing grace that demonstrates a love that we could never replicate. A grace that brings us to you Thank you for the way that you have, again, demonstrated your love, that your son has demonstrated his love for us. I pray that you would, as Paul even prays, that you would cause us, enlighten our hearts to understand just how deep and wide and long your love is for us, how amazing it is, the, the breadth of it, that we would be more and more in awe of it, that our lives would reflect that knowledge that you you have loved us so much and that in genuine love for you we would love you much that we would we would give up our lives for you in whatever way that means whether it's, it's by our time by our our pursuits our goals our ambitions we would submit them all to you and want to know, what do, you, what do you want, Jesus? What do you want, Father? What do you want, Spirit? What, do we, what should we be doing? And not living just how we think it'll be best for us. That you would, you would cause us to love this, this costly way. And anyone who... Who is not trusting in Jesus. Isn't following Jesus. Does not know this love. they would see that it is worth it. It is costly. None of us should ever lie to anyone outside of the church. And let them imagine it's not costly. But the salvation. This love was was also freely given to us. It's just worth following following your son, no matter what it means. Pray that they would see that. Pray that you would open their eyes to, to pay attention to the true gospel. We thank you again for what you've done for us in that gospel. Amen.